The all-time greatest Atlanta Brave was home run king Henry Aaron. From 1954 to 1974, Hammering Hank wore Braves jersey number 44. He belted long balls and covered right field for the Braves until 1975, when after 21 all-star years, Hank was traded to the Brewers. And trust me, it was a strange sight for Braves fans to see the face of the franchise in a different uniform. It just didn't seem right. Hank was a Brave, not a Brewer. And all longtime Atlanta Braves fans like myself felt just a little twinge of betrayal. We felt just a little stab in the back. Hank had changed teams, as had the Apostle Paul. Early in his career, Paul had been an all-star for the Jews. He had boasted he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Formerly called Saul, he had been a leader within Jerusalem's religious establishment. He had even overseen the stoning of that Jesus preacher named Stephen. Yet now he's playing for the opposite team. A once leading Jew had become a follower of Jesus. Paul was now downplaying the importance of the temple. He was offering salvation by grace through faith, even giving it to the Gentiles. The Jews seethed at his conversion. And so when they saw him in the temple, they mobbed him and they began to beat him. If the Roman soldiers hadn't come to his rescue, he would have been killed. As Acts chapter 21 closes, Paul is on the steps of police headquarters The mob still wants to stone him. There's been such bedlam that the chief of police can't even reconstruct what's happened. And that's when Paul asked to address the hostile crowd. And this is amazing. Paul's goal for 20 years has been to preach the gospel of Jesus and God's grace to his Jewish peers. Of course, never in his wildest dreams did he think it'd be like this. But who's to argue with God's plan? He's fixed on the opportunity, and in chapter 22, Paul shares his testimony. Now, let me emphasize, this is incredible poise under pressure. Hey, if you'd just been roughed up, if your life had just been threatened, wouldn't safety be your top priority? I'd beg the Romans to lock me up and save me from the mob. But not Paul. He came to Jerusalem with a message, and he won't be satisfied until it's been delivered. Years earlier on the road to Damascus, Paul had been blinded by the glory of the Lord Jesus. But even after his eyes opened, since that day, he had been blinded to everything else except his desire to share the gospel. And so Paul stands on the temple steps, and he fearlessly declares to his fellow Jews, beginning in verse 1, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. His use of their mother tongue, Hebrew rather than Greek, hammered home the fact that he was one of them. Paul had been privileged with the same orthodox upbringing and the same religious heritage as these Jews. But something had happened to Paul. Now again, this is his big opportunity. He's finally able to preach to these temple Jews. 
And I'm sure he's been planning his sermon for some time. What will he say? You know, it's interesting to me that rather than expound on Old Testament prophecy or launch into Levitical typology or overview God's redemptive plan for the ages, no, Paul uses a much simpler approach. He's going to share his testimony. And isn't that encouraging? Because we've all got a testimony. Paul is going to tell them what happened to him. And this should encourage us, for every Christian has a testimony. See, people can argue with you over theology and over eschatology and over apologetics and the like, but no one can deny your testimony. It's been said, a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. Testimonies are powerful. No one can dispute the change that Jesus has made in our lives. And so Paul, he shares his testimony. Then he said, verse 3, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God, as you all are today. Paul was once like them. He was a Jew. He was a local boy. He had studied in Jerusalem under Gamaliel, one of Judaism's greatest rabbis. And he had adhered to a strict interpretation of the law of Moses. Paul thought he was being zealous for God, so much so that he tells them, I persecuted this way. Of course, that was his name for Christianity, the way. He had persecuted Christianity to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the council of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul had served as the high priest henchman. It had been his job to round up believers for persecution. But Paul got intercepted. He says, now it happened, as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. Now, before we go further, let me clear up a problem. That's really not a problem. When Luke initially records Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, verse 7, he tells us his companions heard a voice, but they saw no one. Here, though, Paul seems to contradict Luke. Because here he says that his colleagues did not hear a voice. So so what gives? Well, in Acts chapter 9, the Greek word translated here, it means to hear a noise. Just just a noise, a, a cacophony of sound. Whereas in chapter 21, the word here means to hear articulate sounds or to hear words, to understand. Evidently, they heard a voice, but they couldn't grasp what was said. Perhaps the risen Lord Jesus spoke 
to a multilingual Paul in a language his Jewish entourage just couldn't grasp. But Paul heard it. That was the important point. And Paul understood. This Jesus he had persecuted was the risen Lord. And so he says in verse 10, So I said, What shall I do, Lord? Now, sometimes we refer to the Lord Jesus, and and we talk to Jesus as if Lord is his name. But you know it's not. Lord is not a name. Lord is a title. It means master or boss, and it implies a relationship. Hey, if Jesus is your Lord, if you have bowed and surrendered to his authority, then you'll want to obey him. You'll want to heed his directives. What shall I do, Lord, was Paul's response. And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. Again, Paul's conversion begins with a who, and it ends with a do. At first he says, Who are you, Lord? Then once Paul is converted, he asks, What shall I do, Lord? And this is how all conversions transition. When you see Jesus for who he really is, you'll want to bow to him, and you'll want to obey his commands. And then verse 11 tells us, And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. You know, physically, Paul was blind as a bat. The light had blinded him. Yet spiritually, the rabbi had never seen clearer. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me. And he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked up at him. You know, the last sight Paul saw before the lights went out was the head of the church, Jesus Christ. Now when the lights come back on, the first sight he sees is a faithful servant of the church, a man named Ananias. Well, then this Ananias said, The God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. God had chosen Paul for what he was doing right now, witnessing before the Jews in Jerusalem. Ananias continues, And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Water baptism is a symbolic washing. It's a demonstration of our conversion that Jesus has washed away our sins. And if you're a Christian and if you haven't been baptized, and that might apply to some of you, you should be asked as Paul, Why are you waiting? Why are you waiting? Baptism is an important step. It's something we all need to do. Jesus was baptized to identify with us, and we should be baptized to identify with him. Paul was baptized in Damascus, then he returned to Jerusalem to witness to the Jews. Now, it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. Now, when first converted, Paul assumed that since he was a Jew, and since he thought like a Jew, and since he was respected by the Jews, that the Jews would listen to him. (laughs) Not so. 
Instead, God here warns Paul that he needs to flee Jerusalem, that he's been called to reach the Gentiles. In fact, Paul will be called the apostle to the Gentiles. And yet Paul never gave up on reaching out to the Jews. I'm not sure he fully identified with his role to the Gentiles, for he loved his countrymen so much. He loved them with all his heart. He wanted to see them saved. Verse 19, so I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believed on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by, consenting to his death. You remember Rabbi Saul was the one who actually supervised the grisly murder of Stephen. And I was guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Paul looked after the warm-up jackets of all those executioners who pummeled Stephen with stones. He assumed the Jews would listen to a former henchman. But the Lord had a different plan. Then he said to me, depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. Remember that word, Gentiles. It's ironic where Paul thought that he would be most effective, which was in Jerusalem. He didn't even make a dent. Yet everywhere he preached to the Gentiles, revival broke out. It just goes to prove that relevance and relatability, advantages that he had with the Jews, can be great assets, but they're worthless if you're not in the center of God's will. Hey, the most effective place you'll ever be is in the center of God's will. Well, and they, the Jewish mob that was there in the temple, they listened to him until this word. In other words, they hung with his talk until what word? What was the word? Gentiles. Now, you know what a Gentile is. It's anybody who's not a Jew. The Jews of Jerusalem couldn't stand the thought that God would shower his grace upon Gentiles. That's you and me. We're Gentiles. They were prejudiced against Gentiles. Realize it was self-righteous pride and it was racial prejudice that kept these Jews from embracing the gospel of God's grace. If God was giving it to the Gentiles, they didn't want to have anything to do with it. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes, and threw dust into the air. All these antics were Jewish reactions to blasphemy. You know, the rabbis at the time taught that God made Gentiles as kindling for the flames of hell. Gentiles were starter logs for hell fire, according to the rabbis. And they considered Paul a heretic for believing that God could save the Gentiles. Aren't you glad God saves Gentiles? You and I would be up a creek without a paddle if he didn't. God's grace is for every race. Then the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. Now, the Roman in charge, he was confused by this whole thing. And he wanted to interview Paul with enhanced interrogation techniques, not waterboarding, but with the flagellum. He was going to brutally beat the information out of Paul. And as they bound him with thongs or literally tied him up with leather strips, 
Paul said to the centurion who stood by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? And of course he knew it it wasn't. Now realize Paul is being clever here. Hey, Paul was no masochist. Paul understood there's no virtue in suffering. I I mean, you can suffer, and sometimes God's will for us is to suffer. But but don't don't think you're holier than thou because you, you, you suffered. Hey, Paul was no masochist. He wasn't afraid to take a beating for Christ, but neither did he egg one on. And if he could avoid suffering, he chose to. Once again here, Paul pulls out his trump card, his get-out-of-jail-free card. It was his Roman citizenship. It was against Roman law to scourge a citizen without due process. And so when the centurion heard that he was a Roman citizen, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. Then the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? He said, Yes. The commander answered, with a large sum, I obtained this citizenship. And Paul said, but I was born a citizen. The commander had gained his citizenship with a big bribe. But Paul had been born in Cilicia, an official Roman province, which made him a citizen by birth. Now remember, Jesus told his disciples that when you go out into the world, you need to be as shrewd as serpents. It surprises some folks to think that cleverness and caginess is a spirit-led virtue, that it's a Christian virtue, but it is. God wants us to have some street smarts. He doesn't want us to be dumb Christians. He wants us to to have some street smarts and know how to navigate things. Paul was able to navigate this world. He used his citizenship when it helped his cause. He moved about shrewdly. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him. And the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. You see, treat a Roman citizen illegally and the guilty soldier would be subject to the punishment that he had administered. This commander doesn't want his back cut to ribbons and so he backs off. Verse 30. Well, the next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear. Now, this council was the Sanhedrin, the 70 members of the Jewish Supreme Court. This was the body that earlier had condemned Jesus. Paul, at one time, may have been a member of this council. And they brought Paul down and set him before them. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council. And what a moment this is. Last time Paul had eyeballed these men, he was on their side. He was in their uniform. He was one of their heavy hitters. In fact, he was a hit man. But now he's in the opposing dugout. And he looks at these men and he addresses them, men and brethren. Now this was insulting to them, for normally a defendant before the Sanhedrin would address the court, rulers of the people. For someone to say men and brethren was to put himself on their level. And yet this was how Paul saw them as his peers. In his past life, he had been one of them. But you can be certain that's not how they viewed him. Addressing them as men and brethren angered them. 
as did his next comment. Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Who can say that? If you're a Jew living under the law, that would be blasphemous. Under the law, the Jews had no understanding of the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus. Any talk of a good conscience was arrogant at best, heretical at worst. How dare Paul claim to be right with a holy God? That was unheard of in Judaism. In fact, the high priest accuses him of blasphemy and he orders a crony to sort of cold cock him right in the mouth. Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth, punch him in the mouth. But Paul strikes back. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Paul counterpunches the high priest. And in my opinion, and it's just my opinion, here is where Paul may have lost his cool. I mean, think about it. His goal is to preach the gospel. And having preached several sermons myself, starting out by calling your audience a hypocrite and a whitewashed wall may not be the best introduction. Apparently, Paul had a temper. Here he lost it. He gets angry at Ananias' brutality. Verse 4, And those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And Paul quotes Exodus chapter 22, verse 28. And his rebuttal here can be taken in a couple of ways. First, He could be speaking sarcastically. Like, I didn't know a guy like this could even be a high priest. Paul could have been referring to Ananias' poor priestly reputation. History tells us that this man was a miserable high priest. He served 12 years, and he used his temple oversight to pad his wallet. He made bucks off of his position. He was eventually murdered by the Jews. He was so bad. But secondly, Paul might not have actually seen it was the high priest to whom he was speaking. You remember we've talked about Paul's eye problems. And kind of infection plagued his his sight. It could have been something that happened to him when he was blinded by the light on the road to Damascus. Perhaps it was an inflammation. It may have flared up here and impaired his vision, and thus he literally couldn't see who it was he was speaking to. Whatever the reason, Paul realizes here that he's dug himself a hole with the high priest, and he starts looking for a way out. He finds it in verse 6. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. And of course, that's why they're so sad, you see. You knew that was coming, didn't you? And they also say there's no angels or spirit. 
But the Pharisees confess both. Again, Paul is a shrewd dude. He finds a clever way to escape a jam. See, at the time, there were two main priestly parties in Judaism. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And here, Paul cleverly diverts attention off himself by pitting these two factions against each other. The Sadducees were the liberals. They were the materialists. They denied the supernatural, the existence of angels, and the immortality of the soul, and the resurrection of the physical body. They believed that only the first five books of Moses were inspired, whereas the Pharisees were the conservatives. They were the supernaturalists. They believed in angels and in the afterlife. They believed in the physical resurrection of our bodies, and they held the whole Old Testament as inspired by God, the law, the poets, and the prophets. And Paul knew that these two groups were fierce rivals. And so here he appeals to Pharisaical pride. All the Jews were angry Paul was preaching that Jesus had risen. But here he reminds the Pharisees that they believe in the resurrection of the physical body. And so in a sense, Paul is on their side. The Christians are on their side. Paul cleverly reframes his trial as an attack on Phariseeism. Well, then there arose a loud outcry. And the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. (laughs) In a roundabout way, the doctrine Paul taught substantiated the Pharisees, so they backed off Paul. But this created a heated reaction from the Sadducees. Now, when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. Again, the commander was fearful for Paul's safety. The Jews were treating him like a pulley bone. They were going to tear him in two. And so again, the chief Roman dispatches a garrison to save Paul's skin. And imagine Paul's discouragement over all this. Three times now, he's tried to preach the gospel to his fellow Jews, and with little success. He's sunk into a funk. But the God of all comfort comes to him, as he often comes to us in our times of discouragement. Verse 11, but the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. I'm certain Paul considered his efforts in Jerusalem to be a failure. I'll bet he wondered, maybe I should have heeded all those warnings and stayed away. That wasn't God's opinion, was it? God commends Paul's efforts. Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified of me in Jerusalem. God speaks of Paul's witness to the Jews in a positive light. Let's always remember our responsibility is to simply share the gospel. How folks respond is between them and God. We need to be faithful to share the gospel of God's grace. Now remember last week we discussed whether Paul was right or wrong to visit Jerusalem in the first place. God had called Paul to be the apostle to the Gentiles. 
And everywhere Paul preached to Gentiles, he saw positive results. Folks got saved. But whenever he tried to preach to Jews, he got jailed or worse. You recall prior to his visit to Jerusalem, believers and prophets alike had warned Paul of danger ahead. You remember the prophet Agabus had even gone theatrical. He had taken Paul's belt and he tied up his own hands. And he had said that the owner of this belt will be bound in Jerusalem. But Paul was adamant in his desire. It was Jerusalem a bust for Paul. He loved the Jews and wanted to see them saved. And yet when Paul arrived, it was the leader of the church, James, who suggested that he participate in a ritualistic vow that would court Jewish sympathies and prove that Paul respected the law, sort of gain for Paul a hearing. Paul agreed to it. And yet the effort failed miserably. And it was Paul's presence in the temple that set off the riot and led to his arrest. As Agabus had prophesied, Paul did end up incarcerated. Now, we could call Paul's visit to Jerusalem a mistake. We could conclude that his trip was born out of stubbornness, not God's will. But I think we would be wrong. Earlier in Acts chapter 19, we're told that Paul purposed in his spirit to go to Jerusalem. His determination was born of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. He said in chapter 20 that none of these warnings moved him. He was ready not only to be chained, but to die for Jesus' sake in Jerusalem. In fact, do you remember back in Romans chapter 9 verse 3, where Paul said that he was even willing to go to hell if it meant the Jews could get to heaven? You remember that? I read that and I am stunned. I don't know about you, but I'm not sure I could say that about anybody. That I'm willing to go to hell to help them go to heaven. I mean, my point is, is how do you say a man with this kind of passion for the lost is outside of God's will? (laughs) I'm not going to say that. In fact, turn to Acts chapter 9 and review Paul's calling at the time of his conversion. Jesus said that Paul would bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Notice it was part of God's initial will, his marching orders for Paul's life, that he would bear Christ's name to the children of Israel, to the Jews. You know, as Christians, we need to realize that favorable results aren't always an indicator that we're walking in God's will. You know, sometimes God's will gets you into trouble. And so again... What's my answer to the question? Was it God's will for Paul to visit Jerusalem and enter the temple? And as I said last week, I have no idea. It's not always easy to discern God's will. I do know that. You know, there are times when you can go to God's word and you can find the answer to your question in chapter and verse. Is it okay to cheat on your income tax? Or have sex with your girlfriend outside of marriage? or consult your horoscope, or flirt with someone else's spouse, or work nonstop? Is it okay to do those things? Well, I can go to chapter and verse and tell you no. All those practices are clearly forbidden in the Scripture. I can say definitively that none of those practices are God's will for your life. But what about the subjective issues in life that aren't spelled out in the pages of Scripture? 
For example, what college should I attend? Or who do I marry? Or where do I buy a house or send my kids to school? Those kinds of issues. There are questions where you can't open your Bible and get a clear-cut answer from God. Like the situation Paul faced. Do I participate in this temple ritual and do I go to Jerusalem? Surely Paul lived a pleasing life to God. He read the scriptures. He adopted godly values. He was open to the advice of Christian friends. He was sensitive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. But what if you do all that and the decision you're facing is still unclear? I'm just saying we are very physical creatures. And it is often hard for us to tune in to every spiritual communique that God might want us to pick up on. Here's where we need to realize that God is faithful to us. Here's what I want you to understand about God and his will. God is experienced in working with frail and fallible people. Now that should be, that should make you glad. God is experienced in working with frail people. Dense people, if you want to put it that way. I mean, sometimes I have a difficult time discerning my wife's desires. And we can text and even talk to each other. And I still can't pick up on what she means all the time. How much more difficult is it for us to pick up on the spiritual nuances and leadings of the Holy Spirit? My point is, God understands our dilemma. He knows how dense we are. You you remember what the psalmist says. He knows that we're but dust. And that's why I believe he factors some latitude into his will for our lives. When I discern his will, I think the Lord includes a plus or minus margin for error. Does that make sense? Walking in God's will seldom requires me to stop on a dime. It gives me a little latitude. I don't have to hit the bullseye from a thousand yards. I think God makes allowances for my humanness. And I think he does the same for you. In Psalm 18, verse 36, this is what David meant when he prayed. You enlarged my path under me so that my feet did not slip. Isn't that wonderful? God enlarged his path under him. He's saying as long as your heart was right, God made your feet stay in the right path. It wasn't just up to David to stay in line. When he slipped, God actually enlarged his path under him to keep him on track. Even if he got out of step, even if he veered a bit right or left, God didn't abandon him. To the contrary, God stretches out the white lines beneath us. He enlarges our path to keep us in his will. He stretches the lane a bit to keep us moving in the right direction. And here God may have widened his will to accommodate Paul's zeal for the Jews and even approved of his visit to the temple. Again, I believe God loves us. You need to believe that too. That God loves you. He wants us in his will more than we want to be there. And he won't let us forfeit his blessings just because we miss a cue. Or there's a little play in the steering wheel of our lives. God is big enough to 
accommodate his children's weaknesses. Here's what I'm saying. Did Paul do everything right? I doubt it. None of us do. But in the end, God got him where he wanted him to be. God fulfilled his will for Paul, and he'll fulfill his will in your life if your heart is right and if you trust in him. Well, verse 12. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Wow, that's some serious animosity. Now, there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. These fellows harbor some serious anger toward Paul. I mean, to the point where they go on a kill the Christian weight loss program. No matzo balls, no falafels, no lamb chops even, until Paul is dead meat. Forty men take an oath. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. I mean, these hungry assassins, they've conspired with the priests to set up an ambush. Forty supposedly religious men plot Paul's bloody end. And so when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Just so happened that Uncle Paul has a nephew who walks by just that time and happens to be within earshot of the conspirators as they're making their plans. What are the odds of that happening by chance? I mean, this was obviously God's providential will at work. See, God wants you in his will more than you do. He's willing to even orchestrate the circumstances around you. This is nothing short of a miracle. God made sure that the right boy was in the right place at the right time. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him, one of the Roman soldiers who was guarding Paul, and said, take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. And so he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside, and asked privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than forty of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. And so the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. And he called for two centurions, saying, prepare 200 soldiers. There's 100 soldiers in each century. And so two, 200 soldiers. Prepare 200 soldiers, the 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night, which was about 9 o'clock p.m. See, in other words, they're going to move Paul after dark, and he's going to travel with this heavily armed military detachment. He says, and provide mounts to set Paul on, 
and bring him safely to Felix the governor. Now remember, Caesarea by the sea was the Roman headquarters in Israel. The Roman governor traveled to Jerusalem only on special occasions. The procurator preferred life on the coast. That's why Paul, to be tried by Felix, had to be transported from Jerusalem to Caesarea, which would have put him at serious risk for this promised ambush. The commander knows that Paul's a high-value target for these 40 terrorists. They're getting hungry now, by the way. They still hadn't killed him. And so the commander puts together a show of force, a military escort to transport Paul the 65 miles from Jerusalem up to Caesarea. And along with the prisoner, the commander wrote a letter in the following manner, verse 26. Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor, Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. And he closes, farewell. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. Antipatris was the halfway marker. See, the road from Jerusalem or Mount Zion towards Caesarea, uh, from Jerusalem to Antipatris, the halfway point, it was a narrow road. It was a mountainous road, and it was perfect for an ambush. But the road north of Antipatris towards Caesarea was flat and open. At that point, at the halfway point, the dangerous part of the journey was over. Thus, the next day, they left the horsemen to go on with him and return to the barracks. In other words, they didn't need the infantry any longer, they returned to Jerusalem and the cavalry completed the trip, the safer trip from Antipatris to Caesarea. Verse 33. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province Paul was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. Paul now occupies a cell in Herod's seaside palace. Trust me, not a bad place to spend the next two years. In Caesarea on the coast, right on the ocean. And we'll study those next two years next week after you've read Acts chapters 24 and 25.